please subscribe and leave a review of Dorky wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can support the pod if you'd like. You can use PayPal or buy me a coffee. There are links to both methods on Dorky's website and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Hello, this is Dorky. I'm your host, April. This is a podcast about history. I'm going to be discussing events, people, and sometimes just random things from history that interest me and are important. I am absolutely not a historian. I'm just a dork who spends a lot of time watching, reading, listening to anything I can get my hands on about history, and I want to talk about it. I think a lot can be learned from looking into the past, and I'd like to share what I've learned, and my opinion about what I've learned, and I hope you enjoy it. When you think of 1920s flapper culture, Zelda and F. Scott Fitzgerald are probably the mental picture that comes to your mind, whether you realize it or not. They were part of the group that defined the Jazz Age, and when I say that, I mean it literally. Fitzgerald is even the one who came up with that term for the time they were living in. F. Scott Fitzgerald, whose full name was Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald, was born September 24th, 1896. That name probably sounds familiar to you because he was named after the Francis Scott Key who wrote the Star-Spangled Banner, which would become the U.S. National Anthem, and who was a distant cousin of his. Fitzgerald was born in Minnesota, but when he was a year old, his family moved to New York. As a boy, Fitzgerald was described by his peers as unusually intelligent with a keen interest in literature. After a setback, Fitzgerald's family had to return to Minnesota, where he attended St. Paul Academy. At 13, Fitzgerald had his first piece of fiction published in the school newspaper. In 1911, Fitzgerald's parents sent him to the Newman School, a Catholic prep school in Hackensack, New Jersey. At Newman, Father Sigourney Fay recognized his literary potential and encouraged him to become a writer. After graduating from Newman in 1913, Fitzgerald enrolled at Princeton University. Determined to be a successful writer, Fitzgerald wrote stories and poems for the Princeton Triangle Club, the Princeton Tiger, and the Nassau Lit. While at Princeton, Fitzgerald returned home to St. Paul during Christmas break, where he met and fell in love with 16-year-old Chicago debutante Ginevra King. The couple began a relationship that would last several years. She would become his literary model for the characters of Isabel Bourget in This Side of Paradise, Daisy Buchanan in The Great Gatsby, and many others. While Fitzgerald attended Princeton, Ginevra attended Westover, a woman's school in Connecticut which wasn't far. He would visit her at Westover until she got expelled for flirting with some boys from her dormitory window. Her return home ended Fitzgerald's weekly visits, but he still wanted to pursue the relationship. He even went to visit her at her family home in Lake Forest, Illinois. Unfortunately, Ginevra's parents weren't very happy with her relationship with Fitzgerald, as they didn't think his social position was high enough. In fact, it's said that Ginevra's father told him that poor boys shouldn't think of marrying rich girls. This devastated Fitzgerald. In fact, 
He was so distraught over this that he enlisted in the army to go fight in World War I. He received a commission as a second lieutenant. While waiting to be deployed to the Western Front, he was stationed in a training camp at Fort Leavenworth. While there, he was under the command of Captain Dwight Eisenhower. Spoiler for history, Eisenhower would later go on to be General of the Army and then President of the U.S. Side note, I'd love to be able to tell a heartwarming anecdote here and say that Fitzgerald and Eisenhower wound up becoming great friends, but no. Fitzgerald apparently didn't like Eisenhower at all. In fact, the phrase, Fitzgerald disliked him intensely, was used. So there's that. Fitzgerald fully expected to be killed while he was in Europe fighting in World War I. I don't quite know how to phrase this, but as heartbroken as he was over the ending of his relationship with Ginevra, that was pretty much his intention when he signed up for the army to begin with. But with that strange combination of hopelessness and hope that most people have in their early 20s, Fitzgerald still wanted to have a novel published before he left for Europe. So he quickly wrote a 120,000-word manuscript called The Romantic Egotist in three months. It was rejected, but reviewers were impressed and praised Fitzgerald's writing and encouraged him to resubmit it after revisions. In June 1918, Fitzgerald was garrisoned with the 45th and 67th Infantry Regiments at Camp Sheridan near Montgomery, Alabama. At a country club, Fitzgerald met Zelda Sayer, who was one of the most celebrated debutantes of Montgomery's exclusive country club set. They quickly started dating, although he continued to write Ginevra, asking if there was any chance in resuming their relationship. Three days after Ginevra married a wealthy Chicago businessman, Fitzgerald professed his affections for Zelda. Zelda was born in Montgomery, Alabama in 1900. She was the youngest of six. Her father was a judge on the Alabama Supreme Court. By the time of Zelda's birth, the Sayers were a prominent Southern family. Her great-uncle served six terms in the United States Senate. Her paternal grandfather edited a newspaper in Montgomery, and her maternal grandfather had served a partial term as a U.S. Senator from Kentucky. So Zelda and her family was a big deal. As a child, Zelda was extremely active. She danced, took ballet lessons, and enjoyed the outdoors. In 1914, she started high school. She was bright but uninterested in her lessons. Her work in ballet continued, and she had an active social life. She drank, smoked, and spent much of her time with boys, and she was very popular. A newspaper article about one of her dance performances quoted her as saying that she only cared about boys and swimming. She developed an appetite for attention, actively seeking to flout convention, whether by dancing or by wearing a flesh-colored bathing suit to fuel rumors that she swam nude. She was only able to get away with this behavior because of who her father was. At that time, women in general, but especially Southern women, were expected to be delicate, docile, and accommodating. So Zelda's behavior was scandalous, and she became, along with her childhood friend and future Hollywood star Tallulah Bankhead, a mainstay of Montgomery gossip. Her outlook on life was encapsulated beneath her high school graduation photo. Why should all life be work when we can all borrow? Let's think only of today and not worry about tomorrow. I mean, if that's not a bright young thing, jazz baby way of looking at life, I don't know what is. Okay, so I've talked about each of their childhoods, and now that they've met and are dating, I'll combine their timelines and talk about them as a couple. 
Fitzgerald got sent to Camp Mills in Long Island to await shipment to Europe. But while he was there, the armistice was signed, which officially ended World War I, so he never had to go. He was sent back to Montgomery to await discharge, and he and Zelda started talking about marriage. Zelda wanted to marry Fitzgerald, but she wouldn't agree to marry him until he proved he could provide a good living. Fitzgerald was discharged from the Army in February of 1919. He moved to New York City, where he tried unsuccessfully to get a job at various newspapers. He then started writing advertising copy to make a living while trying to get published as an author of fiction. Fitzgerald and Zelda wrote each other frequently, and by March of 1920, he had sent Zelda his mother's ring, and the two became officially engaged. Both Fitzgerald's and Zelda's family and friends had concern about this match. His side deemed Zelda ill-suited for Fitzgerald, and her side was wary of Fitzgerald's precarious finances and excessive drinking. Fitzgerald was still working at the advertising agency, but wasn't making much of a living at it. But he was also still pursuing a career as an author and wrote several short stories and satires in his spare time. He was rejected over 120 times, but he did sell one story, Babes in the Woods, that he received $30 for. Not achieving the success in New York he'd hoped for, Fitzgerald couldn't convince Zelda that he'd be able to support her, and she broke off their engagement in June of 1919. After what had happened with Ginevra, being rejected by Zelda hit Fitzgerald really hard. He was single, unhappy with his job, and broke. He was so despondent he would publicly threaten to harm himself. He quit his advertising job in New York and moved back to Minnesota to live in the top floor of his parents' home. He took a job repairing car roofs, but was otherwise a bit of a recluse, spending all his free time revising the manuscript for the romantic egotist that he had gotten positive feedback on a few years before. This became the novel This Side of Paradise, an autobiographical account of his Princeton years and his romances with Ginevra, Zelda, and others. This novel appeared in bookstores in March of 1920 and became an instant success. Within months of its publication, This Side of Paradise became a cultural sensation in the U.S., and F. Scott Fitzgerald became a household name. Critics hailed it as the best American novel of the year. This Side of Paradise sold approximately 40,000 copies in the first year. Magazines that had previously rejected stories Fitzgerald had submitted now accepted them. The Saturday Evening Post published one of his stories, Bernice Bobs Her Hair, with his name on its May 1920 cover. Fitzgerald's new fame enabled him to earn much higher rates for his short stories, and Zelda resumed their engagement as Fitzgerald could now pay for her accustomed lifestyle. They got married in a small ceremony on April 3, 1920, at St. Patrick's Cathedral, New York. I think it's worth pointing out here that one of the changes Fitzgerald made to the manuscript of The Romantic Egotist was to rewrite the character of Rosalind in This Side of Paradise to resemble Zelda. He wrote, All criticism of Rosalind ends in her beauty, and told Zelda that the heroine does resemble you in more ways than four. An example of this is that at the end of This Side of Paradise, a speech from the character Amori Blaine in the cemetery is taken directly from one of Zelda's letters to Fitzgerald. In my opinion, this takes Zelda beyond inspiration or even muse category. Fitzgerald was known to appreciate and take from Zelda's letters, even plagiarizing her diary while he was writing This Side of Paradise. 
1918, Fitzgerald showed Zelda's diary to some friends. There was allegedly discussion between these men of publishing it under the name of The Diary of a Popular Girl. Zelda's letters stand out for their unique turn of phrase and tendency to use dashes and experimental grammar. This isn't intended as a knock on Fitzgerald or his works. I just want to make sure Zelda gets the credit she deserves for her contributions to it. With the success of This Side of Paradise, Fitzgerald and Zelda quickly became celebrities in New York. This was as much for the book as for their wild behavior. They were reportedly ordered to leave both the Biltmore Hotel and the Commodore Hotel for their drunkenness. Fitzgerald did handstands in the lobby while Zelda slid down the banisters of hotel stairs. Zelda even once jumped into the fountain at Union Square. When the writer Dorothy Parker first met the two, they were sitting on top of a taxi. Parker said they did both look as though they had just stepped out of the sun. Their youth was striking. Everyone wanted to meet him. In the pages of the New York newspapers, Zelda and Fitzgerald had become icons of youth and success and rebels of the jazz age. Their social life was fueled with alcohol. Privately, though, it increasingly led to bitter fights. As the fights worsened, the couple accused each other of infidelities and remarked to friends that their marriage would not last much longer. After getting kicked out of a hotel in May of 1920, they went to spend the summer in a cottage in Westport, Connecticut, near Long Island Sound. That winter, while Scott was working to finish his second novel, The Beautiful and Damned, Zelda discovered she was pregnant. They decided to go to Scott's home in St. Paul, Minnesota to have the baby. On October 26, 1921, she gave birth to Frances Scotty Fitzgerald. As she emerged from the anesthesia, Fitzgerald recorded Zelda saying, Oh God, Goofo, I'm drunk. Mark Twain, isn't she smart? She has the hiccups. I hope it's beautiful and a fool, a beautiful little fool. Fitzgerald later used some of this almost verbatim for Daisy Buchanan's dialogue in his novel, The Great Gatsby. Zelda was never particularly domestic. By 1922, the Fitzgeralds had employed a nurse for their daughter, a couple to clean their house, and a laundress. When Harper and Brothers asked her to contribute to favorite recipes of famous women, she wrote, See if there's any bacon, and if there is, ask the cook which pan to fry it in. Then ask if there are any eggs, and if so, try and persuade the cook to poach two of them. It is better not to attempt toast, as it burns very easily. Also, in the case of bacon, do not turn the fire too high, or you will have to get out of the house for a week. Serve preferably on china plates, though gold or wood will do if handy. As the beautiful and damned neared publication, the editor of the New York Tribune approached Zelda for an opportunity to entice readers with a review of her husband's latest work. In her review, she made joking reference to the use of her diaries in Fitzgerald's work, but the lifted material became a genuine source of resentment. To begin with, everyone must buy this book for the following aesthetic reasons. First, because I know where there is the cutest cloth of gold dress for only $300 in a store on 42nd Street. And also, if enough people buy it, where there is a platinum ring with a complete circlet. And also, if loads of people buy it, my husband needs a new winter overcoat, although the one he has done well enough for the last three years. 
It seems to me that on one page I recognized a piece of an old diary of mine which mysteriously disappeared shortly after my marriage, and, also, scraps of letters which, though considerably edited, sound to me vaguely familiar. In fact, Mr. Fitzgerald, I believe that is how he spells his name, seems to believe that plagiarism begins at home. The piece led to Zelda receiving offers from other magazines. In June 1922, a piece by Zelda, Eulogy on the Flapper, was published in Metropolitan Magazine. Though seemingly a piece about the decline of the flapper lifestyle, Zelda's biographer, Nancy Milford, wrote that the essay was a defense of her own code of existence. Zelda described the flapper. The flapper awoke from her lethargy of sub bobbed her hair, put on her choicest pair of earrings and a great deal of audacity and rouge, and went into battle. She flirted because it was fun to flirt, and wore a one-piece bathing suit because she had a good figure. She was conscious that the things she did were the things she had always wanted to do. Mothers disapproved of their sons taking the flapper to dances, to teas, to swim, and most of all, to heart. Zelda continued writing, selling several short stories and articles. Fitzgerald adapted one of his stories, The Vegetable, into a play. But when it didn't do well, the Fitzgeralds found themselves in debt. Fitzgerald wrote several short stories to pay the bills, but became burned out and depressed. In May 1924, the Fitzgeralds moved to Europe. Fitzgerald continued working on his third novel, which would eventually become The Great Gatsby. While on the French Riviera, Zelda seemed to have become infatuated with a French naval aviator, Edouard Josin. She spent afternoons swimming at the beach and evenings dancing at the casinos with him. After six weeks, Zelda asked for a divorce. Fitzgerald sought to confront Josanne, and literally locked Zelda in their house until he could do so. Yes, you heard that right. Before any confrontation could occur, Josanne, who had no intention of marrying Zelda, left the Riviera, and the Fitzgeralds never saw him again. Soon after, Zelda overdosed on sleeping pills. The couple never spoke of the incident, but this episode led to a permanent dent in their marriage. To be fair, Josanne later dismissed the entire incident and claimed no infidelity or romance had occurred. Quote, they both had a need of drama. They made it up, and perhaps they were the victims of their own unsettled and a little unhealthy imagination. Following this incident, the Fitzgeralds left for Rome, where he made revisions to the Gatsby manuscript throughout the winter and submitted the final version in February 1925. This book got mostly good reviews from critics, but didn't do as commercially well as his previous novels. For the rest of his life, The Great Gatsby's sales were only just decent. It would take decades for the novel to gain its present acclaim and popularity. In April 1925, back in Paris, Fitzgerald met Ernest Hemingway, and the two of them became great friends, but Zelda and Hemingway disliked each other from their first meeting, and she openly described him as bogus and phony as a rubber check. She considered Hemingway's domineering macho persona to be merely an act. For his part, Hemingway didn't care for Zelda either. He told Fitzgerald that Zelda was crazy. Hemingway's were not mine. In 1926, a film producer invited Fitzgerald to Hollywood to write a flapper comedy for United Artists. He agreed and moved into a studio-owned bungalow with Zelda 
in January 1927. In Hollywood, the Fitzgeralds attended parties where they danced and mingled with film stars. At one party, they outraged guests by pulling a prank. They requested their watches and, retreating into the kitchen, boiled the expensive timepieces in a pot of tomato sauce. The Hollywood Life's novelty quickly faded for the Fitzgeralds, and Zelda frequently complained of boredom. While attending a lavish party, Fitzgerald met 17-year-old Lois Moran, a starlet who had gained widespread fame for her role in the movie Stella Dallas in 1925. Enjoying their conversation, Moran and Fitzgerald discussed literature and philosophy for hours while sitting on a staircase. Fitzgerald was 31 years old, but the smitten Moran pursued a relationship with him. The star became a muse for the author and wrote her into a short story called Magnetism, in which a young Hollywood film star causes a married writer to waver on his devotion to his wife. Fitzgerald later rewrote Rosemary Hoyt, one of the central characters in Tender is the Night, to mirror Moran. Jealous of Fitzgerald and Moran, an irate Zelda set fire to her own expensive clothing in a bathtub in an act of self-destructive rage. She disparaged the teenage Moran as a breakfast food that many men identified with whatever they missed from life. Fitzgerald's relations with Moran made his marriage difficulties worse, and after merely two months in jazz-age Hollywood, the unhappy couple departed for Delaware in March. Zelda deeply wanted to develop a talent that was entirely her own. At the age of 27, she became obsessed with ballet, which she had studied as a girl. But Fitzgerald was totally dismissive of Zelda's desire to become a professional dancer, considering it a waste of time. She insisted on grueling daily practice, up to eight hours a day, that would eventually lead to physical and mental exhaustion. In September of 1929, she was invited to join the ballet school of the San Carlo Opera Ballet Company in Naples, but she declined the invitation. While the public still believed the Fitzgeralds to live a life of glamour, friends noted that the couple's partying had gone from fashionable to self-destructive. Both had become unpleasant company. In April 1930, Zelda was admitted to a sanatorium in France where, after months of observation and treatment and a consultation with one of Europe's leading psychiatrists, she was diagnosed as schizophrenic. I need to mention here that a diagnosis of schizophrenia back then meant something very different than today. Schizophrenia was more of a catch-all diagnosis back then, and its meaning and use of the term was rather loose, while today it's a very specific diagnosis for a very specific disease. Initially admitted to a hospital outside Paris, she was later moved to a clinic in Switzerland. This clinic mainly treated gastrointestinal ailments, though, and because of her profound distress, she was moved to a psychiatric facility on the shores of Lake Geneva. She was released in September 1931, and the Fitzgeralds returned to Montgomery, Alabama, where Zelda's father was dying. During her family's bereavement, Fitzgerald announced he was leaving for Hollywood. Zelda's father died while Fitzgerald was gone. Zelda's health again deteriorated, and she had another breakdown. By February 1932, she had returned to living in a psychiatric clinic. While being treated at a clinic in Baltimore, Zelda had a burst of creativity. Over the course of her first six weeks at the clinic, she wrote an entire novel and sent it to Fitzgerald's publisher. It was called Save Me the Waltz. When Fitzgerald read Zelda's book, 
he was furious. The book was a semi-autobiographical account of the Fitzgerald's marriage. In letters, Fitzgerald berated her and fumed that the novel had drawn upon the autobiographical material that he had planned to use in Tender is the Night, which he'd been working on for years. Fitzgerald had Zelda revised the novel, removing the parts that drew on shared material he wished to use. In its time, Zelda's book was not well received by critics. To Zelda's dismay, it didn't sell well at all. The failure of Save Me the Waltz and Fitzgerald's scathing criticism for her for having written it, he called her plagiaristic and a third-rate writer, crushed her spirits. It was the only novel she would ever publish. From the mid-1930s, Zelda spent the rest of her life in various stages of mental distress. Some of the paintings that she had created over the previous years, in and out of sanatoriums, were exhibited in 1934. As with the lukewarm reception of her book, Zelda was disappointed by the response to her art. Zelda remained in the hospital. Fitzgerald returned to Hollywood for a $1,000 a week job with MGM in June 1937. Without Zelda's knowledge, he began a serious affair with the movie columnist Sheila Graham. When their daughter Scotty was thrown out of her boarding school in 1938, he blamed Zelda. Though Scotty was quickly accepted by Vassar College, his resentment of Zelda was stronger than ever before. After a drunken and violent fight with Graham in 1938, Fitzgerald returned to Zelda. A group from Zelda's hospital had planned to go to Cuba, but Zelda had missed the trip. The Fitzgeralds decided to go on their own. The trip was a disaster. Fitzgerald got into a fight and was beaten up and returned to the United States so intoxicated and exhausted that he was hospitalized. The Fitzgeralds never saw each other again. Fitzgerald returned to Hollywood and Graham. Zelda returned to the hospital. She made progress there. And in March 1940, four years after admittance, she was released. She was nearing 40 now. Her friends were long gone, and she no longer had much money. Fitzgerald was increasingly embittered by his own failures and his old friend Hemingway's continued success. He had struggled with alcoholism most of his life, but was sober the last year of his life. Fitzgerald died of a heart attack in 1940. He was 44. Zelda was unable to attend his funeral in Rockville, Maryland. Zelda read the unfinished manuscript of the novel Fitzgerald was writing before his death, The Last Tycoon. She wrote to a literary critic who had agreed to edit the book, musing on his legacy. Zelda believed that Fitzgerald's work contained, quote, an American temperament grounded in belief in oneself and will to survive that Scott's contemporaries had relinquished. Fitzgerald, she insisted, had not. She believed his work possessed a vitality and stamina because of his undying faith in himself. By August 1943, she had returned to the hospital. On the night of March 10, 1948, a fire broke out in the hospital kitchen. Zelda was locked into a room, awaiting electroshock therapy. The fire moved through the dumbwaiter shaft, spreading to every floor. The fire escapes were wooden, and they caught fire as well. Nine women, including Zelda, died. She was identified by her dental records and, according to other reports, one of her slippers. I don't even know what to say, except that I wish this was a happier story. These two break my heart, because I believe that they were both very special, talented people. I think alone, or with different partners, maybe they each would have been okay. But together, they were toxic. 
and they seemed to bring out the worst in each other a lot of the time. Despite their glamorous reputations, that can't be forgotten or overlooked. Fitzgerald and Zelda were buried together in Maryland, which I think, despite their tumultuous relationship, is somehow fitting. Inscribed on their tombstone is the final sentence of the Great Gatsby. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. I hope they're able to find the peace together in death that they were unable to find in life. I'm going to end this on a more positive note and talk about their daughter, Scotty. She graduated from Vassar in 1942, about a year and a half after her father's death. Scotty would have four children with her first husband. They lived in the Washington, D.C. area. During the 50s and 60s, she wrote musical comedies that were performed annually to benefit the Multiple Sclerosis Society. Her second marriage ended in 1979, but she'd already moved to her mother's hometown of Montgomery, Alabama, and she lived there until she died of cancer in 1964. I think Scotty represented the best part of each of her parents, and was a bright spot in the darkness that was her parents' complicated relationship. Over the years, myths have emerged around the romance of Zelda and Fitzgerald. Some say she drove him to drink, others say he pushed her into madness. But their many letters to each other that remain portray something else, an extreme connection. Scott and Zelda stayed in love until the day they died, Eleanor Lanahan, their granddaughter, writes. Perhaps it became an impossible and impractical love, but it was a bond that united them forever. The main sources I used for this episode were lithub.com, Washington Post, and Wikipedia. So that's it. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at dorkypod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if I left something out or got something wrong. Or let me know if there's something in particular in history you'd like me to talk about. There's also a Facebook group called Dorky Podcast. Join it and be part of our community. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're hearing it. It helps the podcast grow. But more importantly, your feedback will help me make this a better podcast. Until we meet again, friends. 